What is up, Bitcoiners? Welcome to another episode of FedWatch. Ansel and I just had a banger of a conversation with Parker Lewis, the head of business development at Unchained Capital and one of just the most prolific Bitcoin educators out there. So it is an absolute pleasure to have him on the show. Um, Ansel and I were just opining on what we like most about his awesome content. Um, I just think he's a really first principle thinker and gets down to like the base of everything and put things into perspective really well. So it's really great to kind of hear him break down a lot of the complex economic subjects that we talk about on the show. Yeah, it uh, takes, I mean, money, understanding money and understanding Bitcoin, you have to take uh, a lot of disparate topics and be able to mesh them together. And he does that. He understands all these topics and then is able to synthesize it in a very eloquent way. So um, yeah, it was fun to get, it was fun to meet him. And it was fun to talk about this stuff. Yeah. So guys, you're going to be listening to this exactly one week before uh, Bitcoin 2021 begins. Uh, Parker has been a huge supporter and same with Unchained Capital of um, the Bitcoin conference. They were one of the first sponsors at Bitcoin 2019, one of the first sponsors for Bitcoin 2020. And they hung in there for an entire year until Bitcoin 2021. Uh, so we are thankful to have them as uh, fantastic proponents of Bitcoin and supporters of this biggest in-person event in Bitcoin history. Um, you know, again, Parker, Unchained Capital, always pushing freedom forward. Bitcoiners pushing freedom forward. And I mean, Bitcoin 2021, we just announced Floyd Mayweather going on stage demanding to get paid in Bitcoin. Who cares if he's just onboarding into the crypto scene? He's going to make mistakes. But the fact is, he is a massive platform for Bitcoin and he's going to be at the conference. Michael Saylor, you know, he may have uh, gotten a little bit too close to the fire with this, uh, you know, mining council, but, you know, he's still been a fantastic advocate for Bitcoin and uh, you know, kind of building this up. Uh, the conference is going to be just lined with amazing speakers. Cynthia Lummis, you know, I could go on, but, you know, I'm not. So uh, go to the conference, go to the conference website, b.tc forward slash conference, the biggest conference in Bitcoin history. And uh, I mean, honestly, the best place to meet Bitcoiners, get a job in Bitcoin and just expand your reach in the Bitcoin space and community. So go to b.tc forward slash conference, learn about it. And if you need to get your ticket and you haven't bought it still, ticket prices are really high, but the best way to get a discount is by using MoonPay. So use MoonPay to pay with your credit card, pay with your debit card and pay us in Bitcoin. So uh, we want to get paid in Bitcoin. We give a discount if you pay us in Bitcoin. MoonPay gives you the best of both worlds. You can pay your with your fiat. We get paid in Bitcoin. You get the discount. There is a widget built right into the website. So you can just use your credit card right there and pay us. It's really awesome. Save $400 off your ticket if you use MoonPay. And uh, yeah, I mean, you can use promo code Satoshi as well to add on an additional 10% off. Uh, so that's how you can maximize your discount. Uh, if you're not at the conference, I'm sorry, you're a loser. It's going to cost you a lot of money. That's what happens when you wait. But at this point, you know, you've had over a year and a half to get there. So get there, check out MoonPay and check out this awesome conversation with Parker Lewis. Peace. Bitcoiners, I am sitting across the screen from the one and only Parker Lewis. Um, Parker, if you don't already know, is uh, the author of the amazing Gradually Then Suddenly uh, blog series, head of business development at Unchained Capital, and just overall prolific Bitcoiner and Bitcoin advocate. Um, I think you've, you're probably in the top 
you know, 50 folks who are making a massive impact in the Bitcoin space, um, if not even higher on that list. So always an honor to interview you, Parker, and excited to have you on FedWatch. Good to be here. It's one of my favorite subjects in addition to Bitcoin. Uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a Fed watcher as well. Um, I think all this has to do with the Fed, uh, everything about Bitcoin. So, um, you know, been on uh, other podcasts with you for Bitcoin Magazine um, and POV Crypto, but uh, excited to, to finally join FedWatch. A little bit uh, insulted that you guys didn't bring me on before. Hey man, you're a busy guy. Don't say I haven't, you know, put out the intro or the invite. But today we have a topic that we've been talking about for a while, and you know, I've heard you speak about online as well as uh, as well as on other podcasts. But this idea of, um, you know, how we need a consistent, reliable unit in order to have proper pricing, and like what that means for an economy. And I feel like a lot of let's say Bitcoin detractors they don't quite understand how bad our current system is in terms of just an unreliable unit to make economic calculations. So I guess we can just jump right into it. Yeah, I, I really like, I think that this is the foundation of everything. Um, and that, that, that oftentimes we talk about sound money with Bitcoin and about, you know, 21 million being the shelling point. Um, and that, there is a lack, uh, a general appreciation for Bitcoin and sound money and why you want to have a form of money that stores value, but that there's less of an appreciation for the role of a pricing mechanism within an economy. And that oftentimes, and I, I'm even at fault of this at times, uh, we'll talk about a, um, a market converging on a single form of money. Um, but that it's that that I think the better way to actually conceptualize it is that uh, economies emerge from a common form of money. So rather than converging on a money, it's actually that that it, in order for money to be functional, and, and I think that that we really do have to start at the foundational level. It's thinking about the problem that money solves, and that that problem that money solves is one that everyone has, that is a problem of exchange and trade. And that, um, that, that it's actually, you know, it's different than all other problems because the other side of exchange of money is um, everyone has their own unique preferences. Everyone values things differently. And that if all value is subjective, that money is the economic good that allows us to objectively measure what is inherently subjective value. Um, and that because we all have the same common problem, which is exchange and trade, and we all generally recognize that there's benefits to trade, that, that if we all had to go out and kill our own food during the day, that that life wouldn't be great. And that if someone can focus on certain various kind of special functions within an economy, that the sum of the parts is greater than the whole, um, and that economies are not zero sum. And that, um, that when you start to understand that we all have the same common problem of trade, and then we all have to arrive at the same answer that while all value uh, is subjective and no value is intrinsic, like we might need certain things more than others, but our ability to go produce those and place a value on it is solely dependent on our ability to objectively measure it. And we do that through money. Um, that, that there are objective ways to, to evaluate whether something's a good form of money or a worse form of money. And so value subjective, 
money objectively measures what is inherently subjective value, but there are objective ways to measure what is a good form of money versus a worse form of money. Um, and that that serves as the foundation for convergence on a form of money, but then that is actually what allows that, that, it, that it's dependent upon a large swath of people or a large group of people converging on a single form of money in order for a pricing mechanism to, to evolve. Um, that, that we all have to agree on a consensus of what the standard of value is. And then once we do that via very objective ways, then the real utility of money starts to be realized because we start to actually be able to place value on things. That, that is the pricing mechanism. And that when you start to think about the role of money in that way and the magnitude like where, and Hayek talks about this, where he, it's, uh, I believe in the use of knowledge in society where he talks about how um, that if uh, the pricing system was born of conscious human design, it would be lauded as the most, like one of the greatest inventions that's ever existed, but that it's, that it formed completely organically. Um, and that it be that it ultimately what it represents is an information system is how the lion's share of all information gets communicated um, throughout the world. Um, and so when you start to think about money as this foundation of trade, but then ultimately that once everyone converges on a, on a, on a singular form of money, that like that is what allows a price mechanism to form. It is that process. It is that convergence on a single form of money. And the problem that most people have is they, they take prices for granted. They take the pricing mechanism for granted. And that if you start to understand that it's the convergence on a single form of money that allows a price system to emerge, and that that price system is the utility that allows us to communicate information, um, that, that, that go down to that first principle. And it's actually the money and the price system that allows economic structures to form in the first place. That the economic structures form because we were able to set prices, but that, that, that price setting only existed because we first converged on a form of money. And so when you think about supply chains, and this is you know, why I think it's such an important subject, is that when you think about the complexity of supply chains, again, those are taken for granted. They only exist because humans were able to assess value and put prices on certain things such that certain functions could be specialized. And that if you start to understand the enormity and the complexity of a supply and demand structure with any local economy or any local good or service, that, that you start to then develop a foundation for understanding why if you start screwing with the pricing mechanism, it was the, it was the money and it was a, the price mechanism that allowed the supply and demand structure to form in the first place. And so it's very it becomes very logical that if you start screwing up the foundation of what allowed the supply and demand structures to form, you ultimately get to a point where the supply and demand structures actually break down. Um, and, and so I think that um, my perspective of it, and would love to get y'all's thoughts, is that it's actually the money printing that not just screws up the pricing mechanism, but it's actually the money printing, not just because dollars become worth less, but it's but it actually screws up the fundamental supply and demand structures to a point where a balance grows to, to such an extent where it can no longer be sustained. And then because that system is so complex that as soon as one part of the supply chain starts to break down and one good doesn't get fulfilled, it has a ripple effect through the entire 
uh, economy and, and market in which that operates and, and everything is ultimately connected. So it cre creates uh, knock-on effects where there's, there's broader breakdowns in, in supply and demand structures that might not have even originated from a single good or service. Yeah, I think of it like, um, I mean, there's inertia, right? There's long-term inertia, decades and decades of inertia that you need to get over to shift to a new pricing mechanism or something like that. But yeah, the, the form of money, I believe, perverts the capital structure. And then you have to somehow, there, there needs to be some sort of crisis to swap to a new money. Not, that's just my initial thoughts on what you asked there. And then, but going back into like the need for a pricing mechanism or convergence driving or uh, preceding a pricing mechanism, but a breakdown of pricing mechanism, which is what leads to maybe converging on a new money um, which which comes first in your mind? Is it the need for convergence or the incentive towards convergence or the need of a pricing mechanism? You know, is, is there one thing that comes before the other in that regard? Yeah, I, I think by by definition, um, convergence has to happen first. Um, that the people that enough people have to uh, form a consensus as to what a standard of value is before they can start pricing things in that standard of value that, that basically that, that price system will truly start to emerge until there is a greater degree of stability in the underlying unit. Um, and that underlying unit will become stable only as a function of a large enough consensus forming. Um, and so I do think about it as uh, assessing those objective ways to evaluate whether or not something is going to be functional as money, that that, that it becomes the precursor to a large number of people coming to the same conclusion for very objective reasons. And through that process, the price system emerges naturally. All right, Parker. So I want to talk about like what's happening today. I feel like there's a lot of back and forth of people trying to diagnose like the current issues. Um, and I'm kind of curious, you know, what your thoughts are. Generally speaking, you know, I see a lot of central banks manipulating money or fiat money and therefore really damaging our ability to coordinate and and have you know successful efficient supply chains and we're starting to see those repercussions you know across the board i'm kind of curious on what your interpretation of you know the current situation is so i'll um i'll touch on that in a few ways i think that but but i oh but i think it's always important to think about it not as an output in terms of describing the um, the implica implications or, or using examples of how we're seeing this breakdown today, that, 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 it's, that it's always better to think about the root of what causes it. And that if I, if I were to describe that, to use an example of the root principle of, um, of how the money printing function um, causes the destabilization, you know, there, there's a, probably a few elements that I would point to. Um, one would be thinking about, you know, think about any business, think about any singular business um, that um, sets out. Think about a restaurant or think about something very basic where someone says, you know what, okay, I want to have a steakhouse and um, I, I need to get a space for the steakhouse and say, I'm going I'm to rent some real estate and that's going to be cost. And then I'm going to, I'm going to need to pay employees um, and I'm going to need to get the finish out and tables. Um, 
And on a go forward basis, the cost of the stake is going to be X and, you know, just from a raw material perspective, but I'm going to need to pay labor to, to, to pay for it. Um, that, that you think about kind of quantifying all of your upfront costs. And then you, you think about your, your, your marginal costs, but, but that key idea coming back to what the role of a pricing mechanism is, that the only way for somebody to go through all of those, each and every one of those mental calculations as to these are all going to be all of my inputs. And then what do I think I can clear the market for on a revenue side or, or from an output perspective? And is this going to be worth my time? Essentially, does this have a net surplus? That the very ability to calculate all of those things to be in the position to then go and pursue trial and error is dependent on hundreds of prices and hundreds of inputs, right? But those prices don't exist without a reliable form of money. So that's kind of that, that's coming back to that foundation. The second thing is, is this principle of if I went to anybody and I said, I'm going to set the price of oil. I don't even know what the price of oil today is, but like, let me just arbitrarily pick it and say that it's going to be $50. And I put a supply cap or floor. I just fix the prices and say the market has to clear $50 of oil. That's completely arbitrary. And anybody that is in the oil and gas supply chain would be able to quickly point out the fundamentals as to why that that would create imbalance. It would either uh, have be a price too low such that the, the oil and gas providers couldn't you know, reliably produce oil, um, or it would be too high and the people that were consuming it couldn't afford it. And that we would, we would ultimately have less of the resource because of the price fixing and because of the manipulation. And if you went to every single industry and did the exact same exercise, that everyone within the, you know, even academics, like who I have a very low opinion of, um, even they would say, that that will result in market inefficiencies. Okay. Now, when I pair these two ideas, that like the, the that the price mechanism provides the 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 amount of information to be able to pursue trial and error to form a business, and that if you are in any individual one of those businesses, that if you were to manipulate prices or fix prices, that there would be massive imbalance and inefficiency in that market that what the Fed does when they print money is they manipulate all prices because they are manipulating the price of the foundation of the price setting mechanism, right? And, and so when I think about it at that fundamental perspective, it's like there is no logical consistency of being able to say, okay, if I manipulate the, the price of an individual good within the market, it's going to have very negative implications to the supply and demand structures of that market. Well, what happens when I manipulate the price of the most important good that orchestrates all of it? That, that, that you're going to have those same imbalances, um, but they're going to be basically in every single place of the economy all at once. And it's ultimately gonna re re result in disaster. Um, and so um, I think that, that the, those are the foundational principles but then where you ultimately see it in the real world is that when the Fed manipulates prices, it should be fairly logical to people that prices don't adjust radically. Um, that, that, that when you have a pricing mechanism, the, the utility is not just in being able to ascertain the value of any single good and objectively measure it. It's also what allows you to, um, to know relative value. 
Um, and that goes back to that input of somebody forming a steakhouse and like thinking about all the costs and then and the cost relative to the output. Um, and, and, and a good macro example that I use for people, and this is really at the heart of uh, what Hayek talks about in the, the pretense of knowledge, think about the supply and demand structures of housing, because this is something that people, most people can generally conceptualize. So they either own a house or they know that 2008 was a housing crisis. Um, for 2007-2008. The Fed had manipulated the cost of credit, which was a large input in, uh, in a large funding mechanism for people buying houses. Again, that's also intuitive for people because most people who buy houses have a mortgage. Well, what, what was very apparent in 2007-2008 that, that, that housing prices were unsustainably high. And um, that when those housing prices tried to correct the Fed did something that was drastic that they had never done before. They went and directly bought mortgage-backed securities. They, they, they effectively manipulated the cost of credit to, um, to stabilize or more appropriately to manipulate the, the housing prices higher. Um, and I think about that as sending a false price signal. The market is possessing more information than the Fed, and they are saying there is an imbalance in housing, and we need to eliminate that imbalance. Um, what the Fed says is, no, we're not going to eliminate the balance. We're going to manipulate the prices of homes higher, and we're going to do it via the credit system. Um, and what they essentially do is they create, like, the, the prices were unsustainable. The market was, was healing, was correcting, and the Fed forces the market back into the unsustainable price setting. When we think about that as it relates to supply chains and to the overall economic structure, it is that... And think about this. This was 10 years ago that this happened, or 12 years ago that this happened now, um, that you can look at it, and if you look at it in a vacuum, you can say, oh, well, that price high, yeah, okay, it was unsustainable, it needs to correct. But the Fed was actually the force that allowed it to be sustained. And then the problem is that for the next 12 years, human beings train themselves for a decade to be able to have the skills to, because the economic incentive is saying, they're sending, being sent a false signal is saying, if you buy houses, people can pay, you know, if you build houses for X, people can, can buy them for Y, that, that it's not just that there's an imbalance in price, there's an imbalance that forms in skill sets. And so then a whole swath of people in the economy train themselves to be able to go buy, build these skyscrapers that are only being able to be financed because they have cheap money. And then all of a sudden the rug gets pulled out from under them. And that when you've essentially been lied to via a false price signal for 12 years, you can't then immediately change your skill set. Um, and so it's that not only do supply and demand structures get manipulated in, in a way that is unsustainable, but it's also that labor responds to those false price signals in a way that can't quickly respond. And so when I look at the, the problem child of what the Fed's doing today, it's the same thing that what they did yesterday or 10 years ago, is that they've manipulated the price of money, which manipulates the cost of credit, because that is the, that ultimately is one way that money is priced, and that all of the sectors of the economy that are heavily dependent on, um, on the function of credit and credit as a funding mechanism, they are in massively unsustainable uh, positions of imbalance, and that they are they are the places where um, I think that the cracks start to form first, 
uh, and ultimately where the supply chains break down first because they are the uh, at the epicenter of the manipulation of price signals and the ones that are most dependent on false price signals. Yeah, that was a fantastic explanation, Parker. Um, you know, I kind of want to talk a little bit about like, you know, the central planners that have the hubris to try to kind of control these markets uh, in the U.S. That's the Fed across the world. You know, there's a ton of uh, there's a ton of different central bankers. Um, you know, you've done some really great work where you've actually analyzed the Fed minutes from the 2008 crisis and the subsequent QEs that followed. Uh, can you just talk about like in hindsight, you know, how off these people are and how little they actually know? Because I feel like it becomes even more sinister when you kind of realize the the ignorance that these uh, leaders have and the, the 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 lack of knowledge they have when they're making these manipulations. Yeah, I think about it as um, they are they are both ill equipped um, because nobody would be equipped to, um, and that uh, they have ill temperament because um, they, they, they that it is functionally like they are trying to act God, um, that there are, you know, just in the United States, there's 300 million people that actually have the knowledge of how to build things. And they also are the ones that have the knowledge as to what their preferences are and what they value and, and what, uh, and how they should, should price things and value that, that the price system at any point in time is not static. It's always moving. And it's the people within the actual economy that know how to build cars, know how to build houses, uh, know whether or not they want to go to the beach or fly on airlines, that it's actually a dynamic process of capturing at any point in time, both individual preferences and aggregate preferences. And the output of that is the price system. Okay. Uh, the, the, the Fed, 12 people, any small number of people, it's not because it's them. It's not because it's um, Jerome Powell or Yellen or Bernanke before him. It's that no small group of people can have the knowledge base that the market has. Um, and that's not about you know the value of the stock market. That's literally the knowledge as to how to build cars um, or and, and adding them up, how to build houses, everything, uh, how to get oil and gas out of the ground how to deliver electricity to um, to city centers so that people don't have to live in poverty. Um, and that when you think about, it's basically a transfer of um, a large group of people whose preferences are actually one that set prices as well as knowledge and delivering goods that are valued by others. It's transferring um, from a large number of people to a very small number of people. Um, and But you have to start with the foundation that it's all flawed because a small group of people, when they co-opt the pricing mechanism, by definition, have less knowledge than everybody else. They can't have the knowledge. And that's really, I tell people, the pretense of knowledge, that this is the core of the pretense of knowledge. It's Hayek's 1974 Nobel Prize winning speech um, or a speech that he gave after he won the Nobel Prize. And that, that you got to read that like 10 times because it's dense, but it's like read it over. It's only about probably 10 pages and study it uh, because that serves the foundation what I'll talk about the actual practical application of the Fed. That when you go back and for everyone's knowledge, um, the, the Fed releases minutes two weeks after their meetings, but they release the entire transcripts five years after the fact. Um, 
And, and part of the rationale for that is that they don't want to have uh, the pressure. Like when the Fed puts out minutes, people literally compare and contrast the prior version and like everyone like literally studies the change in small words. Uh, and so they, they basically don't want to have that same pressure. They want to be able to have more honest discussion. So, um, but when you go back and actually read the transcripts, the benefit of it is that you get to get in the psychology of the people that are making literally trillion dollar decisions. Um, and you know the ending of the story, um, but they don't. So, you know, as an example, the way I describe that is I went and, and reread transcripts. So as these people are making decisions about QE one, two, three, um, what they are thinking and what is guiding their decisions, and then you know how right or wrong they were. And so a couple a couple examples that I used to point to um, was that in 2011, and it was either the April meeting or the June meeting, that they go around to an economic roundtable where they forecast how it is that they're going to um, to unwind QE, and they are in, in how and when. Okay, and so like I'm just using this as an example to um, to be able to demonstrate that they are objectively wrong all the time, like blatantly, uh, because you can objectively measure it. And this is one of those cases where when they go around this round table, it, this, is, this is kind of spring or, or summer of 2011. We're in the middle of QE2. QE3 is not even something that's conceived. So for, for relative time, you know, QE1 was around uh, 2009, late 2008 early 2009 in that time frame. QE2 was 2000, uh, late 2010 into the mid cycle of 2011. And then QE3 was like 2013 and 14. So just like framing every that, everyone for that. So this is like June, I believe of 2011. They're in the middle of QE2 and they're discussing what will happen or, or when, when and how they will affect the unwind of QE2 and QE1. So when they go around the round table, their expectation of how they will unwind QE2 is in early 2012. Okay. So like them thinking that they're going to be able to pull this, these new dollars out of the system in six to 12 months. We know that they never did that. And then they had to print, you know, another trillion, 1.6 trillion, I believe, which was QE3 might be off slightly on that. But the point being they were wrong and they were all wrong. Um, the second thing was when they discussed how they would unwind QE when they did that, they discussed will we um, lower short-term rates first or take the dollars out of the system? 15 out of 16 people said they would take the dollars out of the system first. What ended up actually happening? They lowered short-term interest rates first. So they started when they actually decided to pursue this path, they started to, to reduce short-term interest rates in uh, 2015, and then it wasn't until 2017 that they started to unwind the balance sheet. But 15 out of 16 of them said in 2011 that they would do the opposite. And so I, I, ra I raise these points because when you objectively go back and read history, it is that they're wrong. It's like they're wildly wrong. Uh, and even in many ways, they admit that they're wrong or that they're limited. Uh, one of the quotes that I love from Bernanke, it, and I think this was from 2011 as well, where he says, you know, uh, something along the lines of, I can accept that, that monetary policy isn't the solution and that there are fiscal and structural problems that we can't solve, but we must do something, is essentially what he said. I think his actual words is, we must be palliative. And so 
and that's where it comes into ill temperament, but where it's like when they know that they, and, and I would go so far as to argue that they are the actual problem. It's not just that they weren't the solution, but that they're the problem, uh, that they actually create it themselves. But even when they recognize that, like they say in the same sentence, we recognize that we're not the solution. They then go out and respond years later with doing the exact same thing and printing trillions of dollars. And that when you start to appreciate that they're wrong, that 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 you're that any faith that's placed into them, that they're human, they're fallible, um, they don't possess more knowledge than the market, and that their very function causes the market structure to break down, uh, that the whole operation starts to become like, you know, not just asinine, but potentially criminal. Um, because we're all forced to um so certain of us knowingly, most of us unknowingly, but we're all unwittingly being forced to be on this Fed's crazy roller coaster uh, where they're screwing with our lives. Um, and so, yeah, they are chronically wrong. Um, they're not just chronically wrong. They continue to make the same mistakes. It's kind of, you know, one of the things I also articulate for people is if QE worked, why did they need two and three? And why do they need this one? Um, and that anyone who was in, uh, that was actually responding to um, to actual market conditions, if anybody runs a business and has to, to, to operate within reality, they know that inaction is also an inact is also an action. That if something is not working, stopping doing that thing uh, is actually uh, one of the solutions. Um, and they, they certainly don't, you know, I think about a corporate boardroom. Uh, if a corporate boardroom, uh, and think about Blockbuster, like they had a bad business model because Netflix came along. Um, it it's like the Fed would keep investing in Blockbuster, even though it kept losing money. Um, that's essentially what they do. And they can do it because they are detached from economic reality because they can print trillions of dollars by clicking a button on a computer screen. Uh, and that's ultimately what Bitcoin fixes. Well, I'd like to play a uh, devil's advocate. I, I think that um, the reason why they're constantly wrong is because they're in no control. They don't, they, the market has routed around the Fed long, long ago, and the Fed just kind of jawbones everything. They don't actually do anything. That's why they're, act, that's why they're always wrong. What, what are your thoughts on that? I, I think that they're, um, I would say it more to back to that kind of pretense of knowledge. They're always wrong because they can't be right. They, I think that most of them, they think that they're helping. Like, I don't think that, I don't think that Jerome Powell is like an evil manipulator. Um, I think that they've been trained a certain way and they've been trained in a way that says that active management of the money supply can help smooth out business cycles and we can, we can, we can actually help um, the economic structure. I think that they're fundamentally wrong, but it, but it comes down to the fact of knowledge that, that money is the economic good that distributes information throughout an economy. Um, it's not Google. It's not you know YouTube. It's the price system. That is the that is how prices are distributed. Those prices get set by the market of all the people that have the knowledge, and that there is a fundamental limitation that is twelve people that sit around a boardroom and make decisions about trillions of dollars that they just can't know what the market knows, and that they actually screw up the market by their very function. Um, and so that uh, that they're, they're, the market and certain functions of the market like Wall Street, they get the game. So they play to the game, right? And anybody who understands the Fed's game can game it. Um, but if I'm talking about the market economy, which is the people 
that actually make up the supply and demand structures that 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 have the preferences that set the prices, but then also no no actually deliver the value that it is that other human beings um, that how what they what they value that everybody you can't escape it basically the market can't route around um, the Fed screwing up the pricing mechanism uh, because the, 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 it's actually working in direct opposition to it. So basically my my response would be the best thing that people can do is duck and cover because the grenade has been launched uh, and there and, and there's no way to actually fully get out of the, the impact zone. You just have to be able to manage as best as possible uh, when the grenade explodes. Um, and so um, now we ultimately, the way that we route around it is not by, you know, you know, going and buying, you know, different financial assets or, you know, kind of getting out of the dollar. It's like, we actually have to replace the pricing mechanism. We have to take away the ability for, for a central function, uh, a central bank to um, force us into this position where we have to go along. But the only way for the market to route around it, I, I'd say I, I like disagree, like maybe a certain way that you describe it, I agree with it, that the market is routing around it via Bitcoin. That like, that it's not like in stocks and bonds and that the, the that it's not the, the, the market, you know, being the, the tail that's wagging the Fed's dog. It's just that the Fed is screwing up the market, 100% of it. And everyone, everyone ultimately has to feel the pain of that. And the example that I use is, if you understand that economies are not zero sum, that everything is always at risk. Um, that that you also realize that our current status quo is always in a precarious position. Um, and if you look at Venezuela, it's like they their economy has shrunk, wealth has been destroyed because the pricing me mechanism was no longer functional. Um, so I think about it as when the dollar truly destabilizes, even us Bitcoiners, our quality of life is going to degrade for a period of time. We're now we'll, we'll be generally better off because we got the most reliable form of money. But if the economic system as a whole produces less and there's less range of choice, that that is a consequence that the entire market feels as a whole. And then there's a range within there as to, to how worse off or better off of how well people position themselves. But ultimately, um, that, 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 that wealth will be destroyed as a function of the pricing mechanism deteriorating, and then we'll build it back up with a better pricing mechanism in Bitcoin. Yeah, continuing my devil's advocate here, the way that it's uh, routed around is that the private banking system, uh, they don't treat reserves held at the Fed as money. And so they, you know, when banks make loans through fractional reserve, that's where the money is actually printed the Fed just prints reserves that are held on the Fed's balance sheet. They don't actually circulate in the economy. And so the private banking system has routed around the manipulation of the Fed decades ago. We're talking 60s into the 70s. Um, one of the reasons why we went off the gold standard was because money was dollars were being printed in London and Paris uh, through the euro dollar system. So I think that uh, the well, what are your thoughts on the euro dollar system and that the Fed isn't in control? It's actually the private banks through expansion and contraction of credit. Yeah, so um, I have a different opinion about that. Um, I'm not the one to speak to the euro dollar system. Um, yeah, I, I'm sure maybe you guys already just had the guy on, but like Jeff Schneider, um, Jeff Schneider's a guy to uh, 
to, to speak to the euro dollar system, um, but I, I think that it's easier for people to conceptualize that just the dollar system uh, and the local economies, that uh, hyperinflation does not happen because uh, banks create more credit. Um, hyperinflation happens because base money is created and that there's only one way that base money gets created and that is via the Fed. Um, and so, um, and credit expansion can't happen to the extent that it has without more base money being provided. So um, people often say that the reserves, you know, stay with the Fed. And, and I, I think that uh, um, in a practical application, that's not true. Um, and, and the way that I articulate that for people is uh, in 2008, the, um, the banks had $350 billion of cash, including reserves held at the Fed. Okay, so the entire banking system only had $350 billion. Since 2008, over $1 trillion net has been withdrawn from the banks. So that couldn't, that, that, that means that there have been over three entire bank runs, full bank runs. And that was that 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 one trillion net that's been withdrawn from the banking system when they only had 3.5 trillion was because the Fed created reserves. So the Fed has to like the Treasury is the one who prints dollars, but the Fed is the one who creates dollars. And once a dollar is created, then a dollar can a dollar reserve can be converted into a physical treasury bill. That's how the process works. But the treasury cannot convert reserves to physical bills if not. So it's like this idea that's like, yes, like the banks create credit, but they couldn't create credit if they didn't have more reserves. And so the reserves end up going from bank to bank, but, but absolutely 100% is all a function of the Fed. Now, it may be that the Fed system would entirely collapse. Like if the Fed didn't print more reserves, the whole credit system would collapse. Uh, the, the, the amount of reserves is what allows the credit system to be tethered. Um, and that that if and it's why the Fed has to to print QE. So I think it's more of a function of the the tail wagging the dog, and the tail in this case is the market. That the that the, the market has figured out the Fed's game, and the Fed is in a catch twenty two. Like it's why the Fed can never unwind QE because those dollars, as soon as they're in the system, it creates more credit, which creates the need for more dollars, more base money. Um, but it but I do think if if you if you go down the rabbit hole, you will realize. That, that hyperinflation never happens as a function of credit expansion. It happens as a function of, of printing of base money. Um, and and that, um, that, that those things are also related to the, the, you know, as the credit system expands, it also creates this environment of the, just as the, the expansion of credit can only be sustained for so long as the printing of money happens. And as soon as the printing of money happens, the credit system starts to contract to the extent of collapsing on, its, on itself. But because the credit system has become so large, the credit system is the marginal price setter. So when the Fed has a price stability mandate, they, they don't have a mandate expressly to maintain the size of the credit system, but they implicitly do because it's the price setting mechanism. But that metastasization of the credit system is also what at a core fundamental level causes supply and demand structures to break down because it's unsustainable. Uh, it's like it dictates that more dollars have to be put in, but then it begets another wave of imbalance growing in the system. So I think that they're all related, um, and that 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 like I don't necessarily think that you're wrong. Um, I think that that it all starts and stops with the Fed, but then it but basically what they do is they create a system that is unsustainable that they have to support with more dollars. So it's like 
yes, the banks, you know, get into this position where they they um, have a massive credit expansion that can only be supported by the Fed putting in more dollars. And the Fed will ultimately have to put in more dollars, but it's actually the more dollars being presented that's the root level of the problem. Um, that if we were in a Bitcoin world, as an example, and, and, and banks could lend out Bitcoin, that eventually certain banks would fail and there wouldn't be bailouts. Um, and that the market would heal in a much quicker way and so when I think about that problem statement, it's like, let's just imagine the world of Bitcoin and that there's fractional reserves and people are creating basically paper deposits of Bitcoin. That's not a problem because essentially there's a fixed money supply such that whenever that game gets out of control, um, the imbalance is eliminated as soon as it appears, that it can't persist and that the imbalances can't grow and be sustained over time. So I have a, a follow-up here, and I think it's a good transition point, is like, what does the Bitcoin system look like? I, I like to picture the transition as like, there's peaks and valleys, right? And we've probably, you know, reached the peak of the fiat system and are declining now. And there's going to be a valley before we can, that is necessary before we can reach the new highest peak that is enabled by the Bitcoin standard. Why is Bitcoin better? Like, why is Bitcoin a foundation that a pricing mechanism can be built on and therefore better supply chains. I think this is something that Ansel has talked about a lot is that like Bitcoin is going to create better supply chains ultimately. Yeah, better, I don't, maybe better is an interesting term to use. Um, more stable, more resilient. Um, supply chains that, um, that, we, that, that won't be allowed to form with massive amounts of imbalance to create instability and fragility. Um, and and the, the root principle as to why I think about that is if we go back to what we really opened the conversation about, which is you know, how a price system emerges initially, which is uh, a group of people objectively forming consensus on what the best form of money is, um, that if we set aside the properties that, that, that make something the best form of money, because I think that's less to the point of then what the role of the pricing mechanism is and why Bitcoin will have the, the best pricing mechanism, is that money becomes the economic good by which all, like just think about it as a communication channel and an information system. And that when we all converge on the common standard of value, we then can communicate value to each other, objectively measure value, and that the, the price system is the output of that uh, consensus emerging. Um, and that um, if you live in a world, if you, if you start to think about money and the price system as a communication channel and an information system, that what we're trying to communicate is all of our relative value. What I perceive my value to be, but then I'm assessing what each of you, the things are that you guys value. And I figure out, essentially it's this game of trial and error between humans to figure out how to create things that other humans value so that we can get things in return. Um, that the money printing function is exogenous to that whole process. Um, that what it ultimately creates is noise. And that what we really want is a closed loop system that doesn't allow any energy to leak. And what I mean by that is if we learn, if we live in a world that has a fixed money supply, such that um, the, the change of the supply of money in no way influences the change in prices that prices are exclusively changing based on the changes and preferences of human beings, um, that one extraneous variable that creates noise in our ability and friction in our ability to communicate is now eliminated. So that 
in a world where you have the form of money that has the lowest rate of change, which zero is the lowest rate of change, that, that you eliminate any potential for price signals to be sent that are false as a function of merely an increase of the supply of the currency. And so it's, it's a reality. I think about it as, as if, if I was to, and I talk about this in one of my articles where Bitcoin is not a pyramid scheme, where I have a, a diagram where I think about six variables. The supply and demand of good A, the supply and demand of good B, and the supply and demand for money. And of those six variables, there's one thing that is constant or should be constant, which is the supply of money. That the demand for money will always be variable. The value of money will always be variable. Um, but the supply and demand of good A and good B, and then multiply good A and good B to be every good that is in a market economy, that the supply and demand of both of those is variable. And so it's that one constant that is the supply of money, um, which affords for the least amount of noise in the communication of individual prices and relative prices. And then what, what that ultimately translates to in more of a conceptual idea is uninterrupted information systems. Um, and that uh, one way to also conceptualize it would be if the supply of money being fixed and finite becomes the most reliable foundation to communicate all other prices and information systems. Imagine that being an anchor point, um, whether it's a boat that's at anchor or if you're in the surf and you're trying to figure out like you're moving around in, in the ocean and you wanna know how far you've changed, you, you find an anchor point. Imagine that that anchor point was, was constantly moving in terms of the supply of the thing that's pricing everything. Um, that if the foundation was moving, that that movement, which comes in the form of the Fed printing money in this system, uh, all it does is create noise that, that, that mucks up our ability to communicate with everybody else. Uh, and that the way that I they think about the Fed system, which is, is the greatest contrast to Bitcoin, is that foundation is not the equivalent of, um, what's the right way to say it? It's not the equivalent of moving the goalpost. It's the equivalent of the football field being built on a, on a waterbed and uh, and then moving the goalposts. That the foundation of how it is that we all communicate with each other uh, is unreliable. And that you replace that waterbed in the movement of goalposts with something that's fixed and tangible and that can't move or obviate. And that when you build up on top of that foundation, that what you ultimately get is true price signals. Again, price signals that will always be changing, but ones that can't be manipulated, that such that economic incentives merit that uh, large parts of the economy uh, act and cause things to be developed or formed in skill sets on from a labor perspective in ways that are unsustainable. That as soon as preferences change, they are communicated through prices. And if you think about it at a, on, a, on a micro level, it is, you know, you know, when I was in college, a beer was probably like $2 or $3. Now, if you go to a bar, a beer is like $6 or $8. And it's a difference between how much of that beer going up in price is because people actually demanded beer a lot more versus just because of the money printing function. Uh, and I would say 100% of the noise is it's like not because people demanded beer more or that we got worse at developing beer. It's that there's basically 2x the amount of noise now that is just because somebody in a dipshit room in Washington, D.C. tried to 
decided that they wanted to act like God and print money. And so what we would ultimately do in the world where that didn't exist and where Bitcoin works is that the only, imagine a, a value of a beer when I was in college was $3, that, that whether it was going to be, you know, it'll be denominated in sats, but like, you know, whether it was $2 and 75 cents or $3 and 25 cents, um, that, that the changes that dictate that are only a function of whether or not somebody can produce it with less input or whether people value it more. And that is something that's just fundamentally not the case and can't be the case when the foundation of the economy and the thing that prices things uh, creates noise uh, and mucks up the system. All right, Parker, we just have a little bit of time left. And uh, I wanted to end with uh, just a couple general questions. So for the, this timing in the, the market cycle that we're in, you know, with this mid-cycle kind of consolidation, uh, let's take a breath and ask some general questions. We've heard a lot um, today about what is so great about Bitcoin and uh, how Bitcoin will help uh, the economy and help price signals. Uh, but the first question is, what do you think is Bitcoin's biggest weakness? Or do you have uh, a biggest worry about Bitcoin and its adoption? Um, uh, you know, a fir firm believer in that everything is good for Bitcoin, um, that, that money is such a basic necessity and Bitcoin represents an in orders of magnitude step function change and improvement in the function of money, that it's like water moving downhill and that, uh, that, that the fixed supply of Bitcoin will, will cause all of the noise to subside. If I was just like on the margin, things that I think are, you know, not helpful, even, even if I wouldn't say that they're, uh, a point of risk, I would say um, things like this Bitcoin mining council um, that, you know, kind of any attempt to have central coordination to, um, to express values onto the network that aren't native to it um, are ultimately non-productive. Um, and, uh, and it's because ultimately, you know, Bitcoin only works because it's, it's resistant to censorship. Um, and that um, if there was a, 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 an attack vector, I don't think that it's a technological one. I think it would be a social one. It doesn't keep me up at night because I know that Bitcoin is as large and I've seen miners attempt to do dumb shit before and fail. And now Bitcoin's 100x larger and there's real economic incentives and there's human beings involved that, have, that actually get utility out of Bitcoin. So I don't, I don't like lose it, uh, a minute of sleep over it. Um, but, that, but that because... You know, the only thing that, that I would say would, would would threaten Bitcoin's fixed supply would be if, um, if as an example, um, if the U.S. government went out and said, uh, you know, not just that this this is a Bitcoin in an you know, if you're a financial institution in the United States, you can't um, take Bitcoin from from a OFAC sanctioned Bitcoin address. I don't see that as a problem. That's just that's regulatory competition, um, and people agree to certain rules, and they need to change the rules if they don't like them. Uh, what would become problematic would be if the if the U.S. government said it's uh, illegal for any miner to mine a transaction from this address, and if they start to try to treat Bitcoin mining like money transmission, and that it's not so much a bad thing if they did that, that's predictable. It would be a bad thing if the miners actually did it. And so when I start to see companies like Marathon say that they won't mine transactions and they will be they will have like ESG compliant mining, like that's where I'm like. Those people, like, I, I don't have any, you know, like, I probably would have an individual problem with, like, the people that make the decisions, but it's a communication that they don't understand Bitcoin. Um, 
and that 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 they're 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 opening up a, a attack vector. Now they're going to be put down like any you know bad dog um, because of the market force, not because of any individual actor. But it's just like anything on the margin that starts to try to put rules into consensus that are exogenous to Bitcoin's native consensus rules. Those are the things that you just should try to you know call out and steer away from, and that uh, people will learn in their own time. Uh, because Bitcoin's in control, not any individual or group of individuals. Excellent, excellent. And, and last kind of uh, general question here is, you're in the Bitcoin business community there at Unchained Capital. And uh, what is the number one area in the Bitcoin industry that you think needs improvement or will improve dramatically over the next, say, two to four years? Um. I, I think that, um, one, I, I talk about it from a foundation of whether any individual does anything or any company, any individual company does anything, knowledge distributes and it, and it does so uh, on an accelerating fashion. So, you know, knowledge is like, as, as Bitcoin knowledge distributes, people adopt Bitcoin. Uh, that more and more people figure out that there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin every day. And, uh, and more people also figure out how that's possible, probably at different points in their journey. Um, as that happens, as Bitcoin adoption increases, Bitcoin decentralizes naturally, and more people contribute to, um, to ideas. And so I think that it's not best necessarily, I can talk about like what I, like what I particularly focus on, but it's not prescriptive to the network. And I, and I kind of I think that's important that it's, it's if somebody adopts Bitcoin, if somebody also has this knowledge of some function that they think about an idea and they and, and just by the mere fact of more people having Bitcoin and being engaged in Bitcoin, having more mind share, that more cool stuff will be built, that more things that will be necessary because there are things that I can't conceptualize or that I can't prioritize is not a priority for me. It's going to be built by somebody that that, that adopts Bitcoin in a year or two years. And so that it's actually that intellectual and, and brain power that as Bitcoin accumulates, it causes the network to decentralize in healthy and unpredictable ways. And so I think that that's the best thing that can happen is just continue to distribute knowledge so that we get more people contributing to ideas such that the ultimate output is greater um, and is, is more resilient. Um, I think that personally what I'm focused on is I think that it's really important that people hold keys um, and that the more people that hold keys, by definition, the more people that will actually understand Bitcoin, because I think you have to hold keys in order to really understand Bitcoin at a, uh, at a conceptual level, not, not 100% of cases, but it certainly helps. And so I kind of view it as part of that, not only um, I, one of the ways that I, um, that I uh, you know, the analogy that I would use is it's like the Second Amendment. That, you know, in, in the United States, if there's 600 million guns, that it becomes very difficult to have a tyrannical government, um, it, you know, kind of enforce their will on the people. That the, that the Second Amendment is a, is, a, is a deterrence. It's like, because we have these 600 million guns that are spread out, don't think about fucking with us, you know, uh, as a whole, as a people. Um, and, and I think about private keys the same way 
that you know, if there's 600 million keys in the United States, or if there's 7 billion people and there were you know, 14 billion keys, and maybe that's not even practical, um, but that the more keys that there are, um, because keys are permanent and they're the foundation of controlling the value of the network, that they, that they, 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 um, when I say that they're the most important, there's, there's other things that are like close second and third. So um, running nodes and, and Bitcoin mining being distributed are also uh, important, but, but Bitcoin mining and Bitcoin nodes are temporal. Um, they can move. Uh, Bitcoin keys, you have to have it to be able to transfer value. And that the more people that have keys, the more people that are actually going to be contributing to the development of Bitcoin infrastructure, because those are the, be, be the ones that actually get it. Um, so I think that more and better hardware um, there's already great hardware. I feel like in the last 12 or 13 years, like the strides that have been made have been huge. Like continuing to um, to to prol proliferate that uh, will be good. Uh, companies like our own that are helping people develop multi-sig that really sit on top of those keys um, and provide coordination functions uh, and enable people to, to hold more wealth in Bitcoin uh, secured with their own keys. That 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 that's a positive driving force. Um, and then I also think that. You know, it's very clear and this will just happen by the natural market force that as as Bitcoin becomes adopted by more people and the Bitcoin main chain has higher fees, that we're going to start to need, be in the need where we really need to develop infrastructure to be able to uh, use Lightning, which I know a number of companies uh, are already working on that will likely be working on in the years ahead. Uh, but that all of it will come down to, you know, first knowledge and education about Bitcoin, second, you know, keys, and then all derivative of keys that, that um that extend beyond there. Parker, I think that is a perfect way to end the conversation with the spreading of knowledge, you coming onto the show um, and uh, and so clearly articulated, you know, kind of break down these extremely complex subjects, right? Um, the, in the economy, what Bitcoin world looks like, um, the even the fundamentals of the Bitcoin network and why keys are permanent, like all of these things just kind of blowing my mind and you're just casually dropping it on the show. So really appreciate you coming here and spreading knowledge. I want to give you a moment to kind of give a last word, maybe plug Unchained Capital a little bit more detail about what you're building there and close it out with where people can find you. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate Again, I do think about content at the at the root of everything because that's what brings people into Bitcoin. The price brings people in, but then the, the content is what actually helps people uh, understand it. And that's podcasts, it's my writings, it's books, um, and that 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 it serves a really important function um, because it's going to be the future people that are, that Bitcoin isn't even on their their radar now that are going to be building things that that we need. Um, you know, just in terms of what we do at Unchained, so people know. Um, again, on that in that spirit of, of of helping educate and have people hold their own keys, um, we we help people hold Bitcoin in ways where they're in control of the keys, but they're not on an island. Uh, we refer to it as collaborative custody. Um, it, it's a way to hold your Bitcoin without the counterparty risk of a large financial institution, um, and it, it's also what gives you unilateral access to your wealth, um, which I think is a really important principle about Bitcoin. It's important to me. It's important to us as a company, um, and the people who work with us. Uh, value our approach to custody. They feel that they can store more of their wealth in Bitcoin because they know that that Bitcoin is not going to be lost. And that that that, that custody is is the foundation of our business. And then we offer people financial services on top of that. Um, and so we we've got a concierge onboarding service where we help people go through that process. People can go from zero, not having keys, to 
um, having keys in multi-sig where they have two keys and we have one and two keys are required to spend. Uh, but that's really just the start of our journey. Um, we get people uh, educated about how keys work. We help people set up keys. And then we ultimately um, help them secure their wealth in a better form of money. Um, and then we help people buy and sell Bitcoin on their OTC desk. It's just uh, available in a certain number of states. You can look on our website, unchain.com. Uh, but then we also lend against Bitcoin. We just really think about it as the foundation of help people secure their Bitcoin better and they're gonna need other services on top of that. We help people with self-directed IRAs, working with Keykeeper IRA. So it's just, we're just focused on Bitcoin every day. Um, we have an approach to custody that works for us as individuals and we think that uh, it's needed by a lot of people. Uh, so we focus most of our time and energy there and then add incremental value through uh, exchange and lending and people getting the retirement dollars out of the legacy financial system um, and doing it in a way where they can simulate other Bitcoin without counterparty risk. Um, which I think is really important to all of us uh, and for the resilience of the network as a whole, that more people do that. Awesome. And I guess, where can people find out more about you, Parker? I'm on Twitter, Parker A. Lewis. All of my writings um, are on our website. Uh, if you go to unchained.com and go to resources, it's the GTS series or Graduate Then Suddenly series. Uh, so I definitely recommend people reading that. Um, and, and I really just emphasize that, and I, I think it's great work that you guys do is really keying in on once people understand the complexity and um, functional nature of what a pricing mechanism is and how it functions and how it evolved in the first place and how it contributes information. And if you start to really key in on that as an idea, um, that that will help it make be more intuitive of why money is such a great utility, but that ultimately also why Bitcoin is the best money that has ever existed because it has that finite supply and it will have the most reliable pricing mechanism that is not fragile. Um, so I, 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 I write about that. Um, and then I also recommend there's two short essays that I tell people to read. Um, it's the use of knowledge in society by Hayek and, um, and the pretense of knowledge and that they are dense pieces. I've probably read them each at least 10 times, but that if you study those, that the Bitcoin and the role of money, it will start to cause you to question a lot of things that you wouldn't have otherwise questioned. hundred percent. I mean, I think just starting with uh, gradually then suddenly, then graduating to hike is a great way to, uh, really wake up to what's going on. And I mean, gradually then suddenly has been quoted by several, several key entrants into the Bitcoin space as being pivotal for their understanding. So um, really thank you for kind of like cementing this kind of knowledge in writing so people can have it. Um, to all the listeners, you know, Parker is a huge part of Bitcoin education. Bitcoin Magazine is a huge part of it. The Bitcoin Conference, which by the time you listen to this will have already happened. Uh, actually, no, I take it back. No, this is dropping tomorrow. So um, will happen next week. It's going to be happening in a week. So I'll be shaking Parker's hand. Um, and, you know, it's going to be a great time. We are we're here to push Bitcoin knowledge, help people onboard into the better system, the system that is actually going to propel humans and society forward. Uh, so make sure to follow Bitcoin Magazine and make sure to follow me at Seek underscore Snarks. Follow Ansel at Ansel Lindner. Uh, thanks again, Parker. Hey, thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. A quick reminder that all of the content in this episode is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not construe the information as legal, tax, investment, financial, or any other advice. 
Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Podcast Network, or any third-party service provider to buy or sell securities or any other financial instruments. Do your own research.